J.J. Watt, the defensive end at the forefront of the NFL today, and is predicted to go down as one of the greatest defenders in history. His ascent came with plenty of hurdles from a roller coaster college journey. In my head, it was a gamble on myself. To the city he was forced to win over. The Texans fans booing the team yeah. after they draft you. I, mean, I always remember people wondering if I'd be good. And overcoming multiple serious injuries. You have to learn how to walk, like walk properly again. You have to learn how to run again. You have to learn how to cut again. But amid the hardships, the Texan superstar has shown an unshakable drive. Deep down, you want to go down as the greatest football player ever to live. Why would I not want that? All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I, I wanted to start off talking about charity and your foundation. And what I find most amazing about it is you actually started it your junior year of college. Yeah. How did the idea for it come about? Well, I, uh, you know, I did, my parents encouraged me to always try and volunteer and give back. And so throughout college, I would you know, visit elementary schools, visit middle schools and hospitals and things like that. And, uh, it's, a, it's an eye-opening experience because growing up in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, you know, uh, two parents, uh, happy household, very fortunate to have been given every opportunity I wanted. You know, if you wanted to play a sport, you got to play that sport. Uh, there wasn't much worry uh, growing up in a middle-class family. It wasn't, hey, can we afford to play? It was just, oh, you want to play basketball after school? Go ahead, play basketball. And one day I went to visit a middle school and I was having a chat with the teacher while the kids were playing out in the yard. And she was telling me a story and she pointed out one of the boys and she said, yeah, he actually last week just uh, robbed one of his neighbors after school with a screwdriver. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she was like, well, he gets home from school at three and his parents don't, get, his mom doesn't get home till five. Uh, so there's a two hour window where he's home by himself and that's kind of when he gets into the trouble. And I said, well, don't you guys have, you know, something he can do after school, sports or, um, music, anything. And she said, no, budget cuts have kind of forced us to not have any programs. So in my mind, that was kind of that moment where I was like, man, these kids are behind the eight ball from the start and they don't even know they're behind the eight ball. So the one thing I never wanted to do was have kids suffer because we as adults couldn't pay for opportunity. So we started the foundation when I was a junior at Wisconsin. Um, we but, had to jump through. But it's not like you guys had a, a ton of money at the time either. No. It's not like, you, you know, even the year your parents paid for college before you got your scholarship. I mean, it's not like they could just right. throw money at you. So right. money was middle class. Money yeah. was still tight. So like, how, how did you pull it off then? Well, now that I now that I'm a grown adult and I realize how, you know, finances and everything works, uh, I can't believe that my parents allowed us to do as many things as we did as a kid because I now see how much they sacrificed and how, uh, how many things they gave up so that we could have opportunities. So now as an adult, I feel terrible, you know, when I was done playing hockey because we couldn't afford it anymore, that I cried and I, I, I feel like I caused my parents pain because they wanted me to play hockey, they just couldn't afford it. Um, and now I look back and I'm like, I can't believe you let me play as long as you did. So I'm very thankful for them for that. Um, but then when we started the foundation, it was just all about using the platform that I had. You know, I played at Wisconsin, and we had a great fan base at Wisconsin, and the goal was to go to the NFL and play in the NFL, and obviously they're gonna have a platform there, but I didn't know how long it would last, but I just wanted to use the platform I had to make a difference, because I'm fortunate. You know, you play in the NFL, you get to make money to play a game. I wanted to use this platform for more than just going out there on Sundays and tackling people. 
What are your goals with the foundation? We have far exceeded any goal I've ever had for it. You know, when we first created the foundation, it was my mom, myself, and one of my high school buddies, John. And your mom's killing it, by the way. Oh, my mom is, she is the most unbelievable person I know. She's incredible. Uh, but anyways, we started it, and we were in my basement filling out the, the paperwork to start a 501c3 and all that. And on the paper it said, how much money do you think you'll raise in the first three years? And we kind of all looked at each other like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a junior at Wisconsin. I'm not, I can't donate any money. I don't have any money. <laughs> um, and we just kind of like, can you imagine if we raised $100,000 in three years? Like, that would be incredible. It would be nuts. And we have raised over $2 million. Um, <laughs> and it, we're only five years in now. So um, it is incredible. I'm so thankful. And like you said, my mom is absolutely the rock star of everything. Because as it's grown and the bigger it gets, the more responsibility there is. And we all know that the more success that I can have on the field, the bigger the foundation grows, the more kids we can help. So my mom helps take a lot off of my plate so that I can continue to be top notch on the field and then we can affect more kids' lives because of it. So I'm, my mom is absolutely the best. What's uh, the best example of a school you've helped through the foundation? Uh, we've done everything. Um, I just visited a couple two weeks ago, uh, a couple schools that we helped. You do everything from something as simple as a jersey, just a kid being able to put on a new jersey that's not been handed down for 25 years. Um, he puts on that jersey, has a number on it at the school, uh, and he takes pride in it. He goes out there and he, he wants to make that jersey proud, and he feels like he's a part of something bigger than himself. Um, and then we've done everything from basketball hoops to wrestling mats to uh, volleyball nets, softball, everything. Um, so we're we're really trying to make sure that we help everybody out and as much as we can give those kids an opportunity. Now we can't guarantee success. We can't guarantee that those kids are gonna go on and be successful. But what we can do is make sure that they're not deprived of the opportunity to be successful. How young were you when you first realized you wanted to be a professional football player? I was pretty young. Um, you know, my first love was always hockey. so. I always knew I wanted to play a professional sport. I knew that that was kind of my passion, my calling. So when I was young, it was hockey. And then as I grew, you know, we started playing football in fifth grade where I'm from. So from fifth grade on, I wanted to play professional football. And uh, I think it might have been even a little bit before fifth grade, but uh, and it's kind of crazy to look back now and to think about it. One of the coolest little things that we have is my hometown newspaper has a little I can't remember if I was in third or fourth grade, but they asked the kids, you know, uh, about the local team or whatever in the Packers, and they just put little snippets in the paper, and they asked me about the Packers, and I said, you know, Reggie White's a great player. I would love to play football one day. Uh, and now people send me that, and I look back, and I'm like, it's just absurd to me that it actually happened. You said, um, looking back on some of those early days where you were vocal about your desire to be a right. professional football player, as any young kid right. would be, um, that people don't take your dreams seriously. Right. Why? I think it's, the percentages are so small. You know, I think that uh, whether it's teachers, whether it's friends, whether it's other parents, um, I think that people see how small the percentage is and they don't want you to have a dream that they feel like is gonna fail because they feel like, you know, you can't deal with failure and. They want you to set, the number one word I always heard was more realistic goals. People wanted me to be more realistic. And I said, this is realistic, you just don't see reality the same way I do. Uh, I think 
that's such a major issue for me in today's world is when I watch or I see people and they, they squash somebody's dream before the kid even had a chance to go out there and create it. Now I also see the flip side of that in today's world where there's so many parents pushing a dream on their kids and it's not the kid's dream, it's the parent's dream and mm -hmm. I think that's a major problem. But I think if a kid truly has a dream and a passion and they're willing to do what it takes to make that happen, I think that's something special that should be celebrated, not squashed. How old were you when you first started practicing your autograph? <laughs> I was in middle school uh, and you know, just like every kid, you hope to make it to the big leagues right. one day and somebody to ask for it, so I figured why not start practicing now? Uh, dream big, work hard. You remember where you first wrote that? Uh, it was in high school, um, and you have to you know, think of different quotes and things. Uh, and I always wanted a quote that was original to me and that meant something to me. And I didn't, you know, everybody has the standard quotes. You know, there's some great quotes out there, Muhammad Ali quotes, you know, Vince Lombardi quotes, but I wanted one that represented what I was about. And it goes along with what we're talking about with people, you know, telling you you can't do something. Uh, dream big. Uh, I want people to have the biggest dreams in the world. It doesn't matter what your field is, it doesn't have to be sports. I want people to be able to think and dream big and have the biggest idea of what you want to accomplish. But you can't have that without the second part, which is to work hard. You can't have the big dreams without the hard work. So you have to have those dreams and you have to have the vision and the passion to create it. But then you have to go out there and put in the work and make the sacrifices. And that's why I put those two together because you really can't have one without the other. How confident are you in your ability? I'm very confident. Uh, you have to be. To play at the highest level, to compete against some of the best athletes in the world every single week, to know that everybody's trying to stop you every single game, every single play. If you don't believe in yourself, A, nobody else is going to believe in you. B, the guy across from you is going to see it. And then C, you're just never going to be successful, period. So for me, I put in all my work. I put in all my time. And when game day comes, I'm loose, I'm relaxed, I'm fun. Because I know I worked harder than that guy. I know that I'm more prepared than that guy. So my confidence level is extremely high. And I think that's, confidence is one of the biggest factors in any sport. Um, but it can't be fake confidence. Your buddy Taylor was telling me he thinks one of the things that drives you is the fear that there's somebody out there working harder. I would agree with that. Really? I would agree with that. I think that there's always somebody trying to take your spot. Uh, there's always somebody out there who's trying to be the best. You know, my, my big thing for a long time has been somebody has to be the best in the world. It doesn't matter if it's playing the piano, it doesn't matter if it's golf, it doesn't matter if it's reporting, it doesn't matter if it's football. There is somebody who is the best in the world. Why can't I be that person? What do you think makes you successful? I think it's the willingness to make sacrifices. I think it's the discipline. I think it's, I mean, obviously I'm fortunate to have a, a body that gives me a better chance <laughs> than some in, in my sport, but I think it's the day-to-day -day willingness to do what it takes. I think that a lot of people have long-term visions, long-term goals, but what you're going to do today, this minute, to make yourself more successful, that's really what sets people apart. What motivates you? Greatness. I mean, I just, I want to be great. I want to see what is possible. I want to see what people can accomplish. I want to show people what can be accomplished. I want to make my family proud. I really want to go out there and make my family proud of the way I work, the way I play, 
the person that I am. Um, and I just want to have fun. It's fun. It's <laughs> having success is fun. Like it's way more fun to be successful than to fail. Um, so I go out there and I work hard to try and be successful. Somebody close to you told me that deep down you want to go down as the greatest football player ever to live. True? Shouldn't everybody? Why would I not want that? I think that if you're playing the game and if you're waking up every day and going to work and putting in the time, putting in the effort, eating right, sleeping right, doing everything, why would you do all that work if you're not trying to be the best ever? It just seems like that would be such a waste of time to me. If you're going to play something, I don't care what it is, you should, your goal should be to be the best ever. Now, you may not accomplish that, but you're going to create the best self, the best version of yourself that there is. I heard a quote the other day, I can't remember who said it, but it was something like, my biggest fear is that one day the man I became will meet the man I could have become. And I think that that's such a, a real quote and that's probably another driving factor for me is I don't want to leave anything on the table. I don't ever want to look back in my life and say, I wish I would have done this or I wish I would have worked a little harder here or I wish I would have gone down this path. I want to leave the game, I want to leave this life knowing that I did everything I could to be the best I could be. Uh, businessmen, movie stars, athletes, singers, um, why will you study different people? Because success isn't unilateral. Success isn't uh, just for this category, just for that category. Just because you're a successful football player doesn't mean you can't learn from people who've had success in other businesses. So like you said, whether it's in the business world or it's in the entertainment industry, whatever it is, I try and learn what makes those people successful, whether it's uh, something as simple as a fan interaction where they have this incredible connection with their fans that I can figure out how to have a better connection with my fans, or it's something as big as a businessman and his you know, venture capitalism firm and how he got to be extremely successful in that, and I can learn something from that. So there's always people that you can learn from. There's always little tips and things that you can take, and sometimes it's just as simple as having a good conversation with somebody who can get on a deep level with you, and I think that's pretty special. How much does football consume your mind? It depends on the day. Uh, it consumes a lot of it, uh, but it consumes, over the years I've learned how to let it consume my mind at the right times. You know, there was a point in my life where football consumed every waking second of my life. And, and I mean, from what I've read about you, it seems like it still right. does. It still has a lot. Okay. It still has a lot, but I think I'm learning over the last few years. I've learned how to be better about um, making sure I enjoy everything. Because the one there was definitely a time where I let football rule my whole life, my whole existence, and it makes it makes everything else sacrifice. You sacrifice everything else because you don't enjoy where you are. You know. Uh, one thing I talked about with Taylor is there's no point in getting to the top of the mountain if you don't stop and look around and enjoy the view. Um, so he always reminds me of that. Is like, hey man, like take a second, look around, see what you've created, see what you've done. This is unbelievable, and it is. It's it's incredible. Like tomorrow, I'm gonna take a second. I'm gonna look around and be like, it's the craziest thing ever. But I'll never let myself sit in that moment for too long because there's more mountain to climb. And, uh, the couple days leading up to a football game that you're playing in, how fired up will you get? I don't get as fired up as I think you would think I do. Okay. Uh, because it's all about the preparation. And the closer I get to the game, 
the more the preparation actually dwindles. So uh, the beginning of the week is by far where I spend the most time studying the other team, learning about them, focusing on their tips, their keys, what I can get. Um, and obviously I practice throughout the week and then you start to, as the week goes on, I've put in the work, I've put in the time. My mindset switches from, okay, they do this, they do that, I need to stop this, I need to stop that, to by about Friday, Saturday, it becomes, they have to stop me. I've learned everything I can about them, I know everything about them, but let's be honest here, they have to stop me. They have a bigger challenge in stopping me than I do in stopping them. And that's the mindset that's gonna make you great. Why do you think you're at your best in the biggest moments? Because somebody has to be. <laughs> uh, why not? Those are the moments that make history. Those are the moments that everybody remembers. Those are the moments that change momentum for a team, change momentum for a city. Do you feel the pressure in those moments? I don't feel pressure, no. Um, there's a lot of times where somebody, whether it be a coach, whether it be a teammate, they come up to me and say, hey, it's time to make a play. I remember one specific example in college where we needed a blocked field goal. Uh, and Jay Valai, one of our safeties, came up to me and said, hey, block this field goal. I blocked it. Like, it was just surreal uh, sometimes uh, when and Coach Kolar was one of my D-line coach who, who left, but he's with, he used to be with us. And he would, throughout the game, come up to me and say, hey, Right now, we need to play. Wait, so the kid says that to you in college. Yeah. We need you to block this field goal. From that point forward, what are you thinking of it? I don't, it's not like I all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, I'm going to block the field goal. It was just, okay, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Like, I try and do it every single play. I mean, we just got lucky and he said it on the right one. <laughs> but that, I think that's one of the major reasons why I'm fortunate enough to have success is because I honestly believe I'm going to make every single play. Now, obviously, I don't make every single play, but when that opportunity comes that there is a chance for me to make the play, I make it. Um, that's why I want to stay on the field for every single play. That's why I never want to be on the sidelines. Uh, that's why I want to play on special teams and everything because I want to make every single play there is. Describe what beast mode is. Uh, that's the mode that you go into when it's time to take over everything, time to take over the game. Nobody can stop you. There's not a single person, there's not a single scheme, there's not anything that's going to stop you from getting the ball. That's my job, to get the ball. At the end of the day, it's, I'm paid a whole lot of money to chase around a little brown football. When you're on the field, uh, right before a snap, what are you looking for? Right before the snap, I'm looking at everything from the formation to uh, the guy across from his eyes, his hands, his hips, his feet. Uh, to the quarterback's eyes, to the quarterback's voice, to the running back's alignment, to wide receivers, where are they? Uh, I'm looking at literally everything. And then as soon as the ball is snapped, my mind goes completely blank and it's on autopilot. Because when you're truly playing your best, when you're truly at the top of your game and you're completely locked in, you don't, you don't think about anything. There's no thought. If I ever look at a picture of myself like from a big play or from a big moment in a game, I can see the look in my eyes where it's like I'm almost glazed over, like I'm not even there because I'm not in control. Like my body's on autopilot. And if I make, so like, let's say the 80 yard touchdown, interception for a touchdown against the Bills, I had to watch the replay to remember what it was like because I. You won't remember it? No. Okay. So you watch it. So now when I think about that play, I only remember the replays. I don't <laughs> remember the actual play. It's crazy. Explain what jab and go is and why it's risky. Man, who's giving you your information? <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, it's basically a technique where you, you fool the offensive lineman 
if you're quick enough, you fool them into thinking you're going one way, and then you take you go right behind them um, to taking a different path to get to the ball carrier. And it's very risky because you can get yourself, you're, you're technically getting out of your gap in order to make a play. And if you don't make that play, you're really hurting yourself, you're hurting the defense. Um, but it's one of the most successful things that I've been able to do because you have to have a certain quickness, you have to have a certain knowledge, and you have to do it at the right time. So that's where calculated risks come into play. For me, it's all about it, taking a calculated risk, knowing basically your percentage of success and deciding whether or not it's worth it. And I'll never put my defense in a bad situation. I'll never put my team in a situation where I feel like I've harmed us. Um, now I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to take some chances and miss, but I'm going to win way more of those than I lose. And I think that you have to be the right player. You have to have the right coaches who trust you, and you have to have the right players behind you who are going to help you uh, if you do screw up. But that's why I train so hard, to make sure that in those situations I'm ready. Explain what options you have on a defensive call and what they mean. Depends on the call, but I have a lot of options. And I'm fortunate to have a defensive coordinator who gives me those options. So I can line up anywhere from, you know, nose to three technique to five technique to outside and nine technique. I can blitz, drop. Um, there's so many different things that can happen on any play. And it's another thing of having the right teammates who understand and who allow you to do that and who uh, are willing to you know, make those sacrifices and willing to work within the system. Everybody has a role on the team. Everybody knows their role, and our guys do a great job of everybody understanding their role. And are you and the other defenders on the same page enough where you guys will know what the other one's going to do without even having to signal yeah. to one another? That's when we're doing really well. That's, okay. when, that's when we're playing at our top. Uh, at our top level is when all you have to do is look. Uh, sometimes you don't even have to look. I'll just start to walk over somewhere. I'll just make a little, uh, you know, it can be as simple as a hand motion, a head movement, or just locking eyes and knowing, okay, this is what we're going to do. And that's when you're really doing something special. Growing up in family, um, what makes Pewaukee special? Everybody knows everybody. Uh, it's a, it's a tight-knit community. It's a small town. When I was in high school anyway, everybody came out to the football games. Uh, the football players went to the soccer games. We went to the volleyball games. We went to wrestling matches. Uh, we would all support each other. And to me, that was the coolest part of it all, was that we all knew each other. We all knew each other's families. And we all supported each other. And it honestly was a community. Uh, I think that that was one of the coolest parts of being from Pewaukee. And that's why I love that's why my best friends today are still my high school friends, because of that community aspect. I was talking to your mom about this uh, a little bit ago. Um, when she was pregnant with you, um, when you were in her belly, um, because of your size, people thought she was pregnant with twins. Yeah. What do you know about that? I don't know much about it. I just know I was a fatty coming out. So I was... Uh, <laughs> they had to break your collarbone. Yeah. No, I, uh, they had to break my collarbone. Uh, I, was a, I was a chunky baby. I had pigeon, pigeon toes, so they had to correct my feet and my legs. Um, and, I mean, I guess it all worked out okay because I'm here. But, um, yeah, I was always a big... I, I know I was a big baby. Uh, your dad played... Uh, high school football. Uh, he was an all-conference wrestler. Uh, he and your uncle mm -hmm. uh, are firefighters or were firefighters. Um, what do you remember from growing up being at the fire station? I remember not liking the fire station. No? Uh, no, I didn't like it because in my mind it always 
reminded me that my dad, you could lose your dad any day uh, because he's putting himself in that line of fire every single day. He has to go into burning buildings. He has to go save people. And that always resonated with me as, you know, my dad could be gone any day. And so for me, I hated going there. I hated seeing the ambulance. I didn't want to go on the trucks. I didn't want to see any of it because I guess I had blocked it out of my mind. You know, it was just dad goes to work, dad comes home. You don't think about what actually happens on a day-to-day -day basis. And the older I got, the more I realized the risks and, you know, what he was doing. Um, Did you ever say that to him or your mom? Um, they knew I didn't like it because I like Like, how, how did they know? Because I didn't, like, we would either want to take a picture in the fire truck or in the ambulance. And I, the ambulance was, like, the fire truck was cool. I was fine with the fire truck. The ambulance, I just never liked the ambulance. I still, to this day, like, hate ambulances. I, I don't want to be near one. I don't want to see one. Like, it's, I don't like it. Um, I just, it's just something that I've never liked from a young age because I always associate it with either death or injury or um, always negative thoughts, so I never wanted to be around it. Mm -hmm. So you were good at a variety of different sports. You played, uh, you know, basketball, baseball, great at hockey till you were 13 years old. And then your, your dad said uh, you picked up shot put. Mm -hmm. And eight weeks later, yeah. you win the high school state title championship. How true is that? It's true. Uh, my dad, my senior year of high school, you know, my dad had held the shot put record at our high school since 1980. You know, I always saw it on the wall. You know, you'd walk past it. In my senior year, I was kind of like, let's see what I can do. Like, let's, let's see if I can, how close I can get to my dad's record. So I literally, the first track practice of the year was my first time throwing a shot put. That's, I was like, all right, let's see what happens. And I was average, you know, nothing great. But by the end of the year, I had made it to state and ended up winning state and, and crushing my dad's record. So it was good. What did your dad say? Uh, he was proud. He was excited. Um, I think that by by the end of the season, by how much I had beat his record by, like I think the sting had worn off a little okay. bit. Um, but then my brothers came up behind me and they were uh, pushing the record. You know, Derek claims to have beat it, but he never did. Uh, and TJ threw it. I'm pretty sure he beat it. So. But it was fun. It created a fun little competition with our family. And Derek and TJ both had four years of doing it in high school. I only had eight weeks. So let's make sure we get that on the record. So you, you set the record and right. with only yeah, eight I mean, weeks I, of not, experience. Yes. They did it all along. Yeah, and they had technique. Yeah, okay. so, um, but no, it was fun. I think it created a cool little family rivalry. And for me, it was a blast to do because track season is so fun and you get to interact with like that. That was my favorite part about high school was just interacting with everybody else, whether it was at a track meet and you get to hang out and uh, just enjoy each other's company with all the other athletes or it's after a football game you go to you know the local diner at night and, and grab food or after a Saturday morning practice you go get brunch with the guys like that that was the best part to me it's always the relationships and the fun so there are three brothers you Derek TJ I, I mean it had to be crazy when you guys were growing up the three of you in your parents house wasn't it strong competition there was always strong competition it was there was always fun because there was always somebody to play with, you know, whether it was mini sticks in the basement playing mini hockey or it was uh, out in the front yard playing football or whatever it was, you always had somebody to compete with. And we were never really, I mean, of course you have, you know, the brother moments where you beat up on each other and all that, but I think we were more, you know, loving and caring brothers than anything else. Like nobody was going to mess with, uh, with the three of us. And if anybody messed with one, they messed with all three. And, um, I think to this day that's why our bond is so strong is because we've always supported each other and we all knew what 
each other's goals were. And so TJ will call me on any given day and, and ask, hey, I'm going to eat this. You know, how can, I, how can I make salmon because I want clean protein? Or yeah, I was thinking about this pass rush move. Can you help me with this pass rush move? Or Derek will call him you know, right before he got to San Diego. And he's like, hey, what's rookie minicamp going to be like? How can I make the best impression? All these different things. And I think that's the coolest thing when I can talk to them and we can get each other's opinion on something. I think that's very rare. I hear there were um, pretty awesome backyard football games too because your backyard backed up to a couple others. Yeah, so we had, we had plenty of kids in the neighborhood and uh, the, the backyards were set up perfectly for uh, the distance and the width you needed and there were some epic backyard battles and I think that's those are some of the best memories. Going into I guess your senior year of high school, you get mono. Um, how does that affect your college stock and then Explain kind of the back and forth you went through with your college decision because of coaches leaving mm -hmm. or getting fired. Well, I mean, obviously, when when you have mono, I couldn't I couldn't participate in any camps, and you know, at that time with recruiting, it was all about what you did in camp. And uh, since I couldn't go to any camps, I didn't get a chance to prove myself to any coaches. Didn't get a chance to go face to face with coaches, so that was tough, and it definitely you know put a damper on my recruiting process. Um, but it, I hurt, it hurt a lot though, right? Yeah, I mean, okay. yeah, because you, you really can't go through the process. And, and obviously you sent out your game film, and I still was fortunate to get offers. Um, but I feel like, you know, there could have been more. Um, so I ended up committing to Central Michigan and Brian Kelly, uh, sitting in his office, talking to him. Uh, and then I go home, and as soon as I land back in Wisconsin, I see Brian Kelly's going to Cincinnati. And I, <laughs> I was like, well, man, that sucks. Um, so I reopened up my commitment. That'd be crazy. I mean, no, it literally crazy, yeah, having that. You literally, yeah, you're sitting in his office talking about you know big things and all these great things you want to accomplish, and then the next minute you're like, well, I guess those things are out the window. Uh, that was kind of my first real taste of college recruiting, where okay, this is a business. It's not. They're not buddy buddy. It's not your family. Like this is a business. And so then I reopened my commitment. I visited you know a whole bunch of schools. Um, Ended up committing to Minnesota, Glenn Mason. And they played Texas Tech in the bowl game and they gave up like a 40 point comeback and they ended up losing in overtime, like 44 to 41. And he got fired. So uh, I'm sitting there like, man, like this sucks. Like both the coaches I was gonna play for are leaving. So I go up and visit Minnesota, uh, a new coach there. I went up to the offices and nobody really like said hi or anything. Nobody really knew who I was. Nobody. Uh, seemed to care who I was, so I was kind of like, oh, I don't think I'm going to fit in very well here because, you know, they don't, they don't even seem to care that I'm a commit or anything. They don't. Um, so I reopened my commitment, and by that pro time, it was late in the process. I had already had relationships with some of the players at Central Michigan from committing previously, and so I recommitted uh, to Central Michigan and, and back to Butch Jones because I wanted to start as a tight end as a freshman. That was my goal, and I did that. Uh, we won the MAC championship. I was a starting tight end. It was cool. Like that's that was the dream, but it was. It wasn't exactly how I had the dream in my head because right. he, I was playing tight end in a spread offense, and that's not exactly uh, the ideal situation. Here, here's what's uh, amazing to me, and I think it was even after your first game that you playing yeah. tight end for Central Michigan that you knew it just yeah. wasn't the right fit. So you're willing to give up the scholarship at Central Michigan to, per NCAA rules, yeah. have to sit out a year, only to then go to Wisconsin, mm -hmm. 
to pay to go to college and to not even be guaranteed a spot on the football team yeah. have to walk on. So why take the risk? I mean, there's many reasons. I remember I came out of that first game. Uh, it was at Kansas when I was at Central Michigan. I came out of the stadium. My parents were outside the buses, and I, I, I looked them right, and I said, can I transfer? And they said, what do you mean? I said, can I, I, I said this isn't going to work. Like, this isn't what I envisioned. This is not how I wanted my college career to go. I want bigger. I want better. Um, and right there, they, we talked about transferring to Wisconsin and the fact that I would be giving up a full scholarship uh, giving up a starting position, I'd have to walk on, sit out a year, and they told me that they could afford to pay for one year. And they said if I was willing to do everything possible in my power to get a scholarship at Wisconsin, if I was willing to treat every single day like my Super Bowl, that they would fully support it. And I think that anybody else looking in on that situation would be like, man, you're crazy. You're a starter on a MAC championship team. Uh, you have a full scholarship. Why would you give that up? But in my head, it was a gamble on myself. I was willing to put all the chips in. I was willing to gamble everything I had on myself, knowing that nobody was going to stop me from accomplishing my goal. What would have happened if you didn't get a scholarship after that first year there? I would have had to drop out. I would have had to go get a job uh, to either pay for college or get a job just to get a job. Um, you know, like I said, we were a middle-class family. My parents couldn't pay for my whole college, especially at a school like Wisconsin. So. We would have had to figure out something else, and I wouldn't have been able to play football. So that's, I think that back-to-the-wall mentality is really what makes me who I am. I love having my back to the wall, and even if my back's not against the wall, I think I find ways to make my back against the wall in my own head. I think that's one of my, like, I don't know if it's a good quality or bad quality, mm -hmm. but I find a way to put a chip on my shoulder. I know this has since become a famous story, but you did have to have a job mm -hmm. during that time. And talk about the six months you spent as pizza delivery guy and then when you delivered the pizza to mm -hmm. a young kid who happened to know you as a football player. Yeah, you know, I think the story's been told a whole bunch of times throughout my career and it's obviously taken on a life of its own where a lot of it is misconstrued. Um, I did. I delivered pizzas for six months during that time. Um, not the worst job in the world, you know. You get to deliver pizzas, you get to drive around in your car, listen to music. It's not that bad. Um, and you make okay money. Yeah, you're making all right money. Right. Um, so it was pretty cool. And I, I had to gain weight at the time, so I was eating pizza on my break. Like, it was great. That's just the way it went. Um, but yeah, there was the moment where I did deliver to a family, and, and the little boy answered the door, and, and he looked up at me and like, Mom, J.J. Watt's here. And I, I had to tell him, I have your pizza. And he just looked at his mom like, you know, why, why is J.J. Watt delivering our pizza, you know? And for me, it wasn't a life-changing moment because I was already going to to Wisconsin. Like I already knew what I was doing. It wasn't like I, I did not go back to my car and cry or anything like that. But it was one of those moments where I just was like, "This that kid's not supposed to look at me and think, how did this football player fall from grace? He's supposed to look at me like, that's J.J. Watt. Like That's my idol. Um, like he did look at me at first. And so I wanted that feeling back. And it was just kind of a reaffirming that what I was doing and the process I was going about was right and that I, everything that I was going to go through over the next year to get a scholarship, to play on the scout team, to work every single day, to sacrifice everything I had to sacrifice, that moment kind of said it's all going to be worth it.
and the rest is obviously history. You end up getting drafted 11th overall by the Texans and uh, mm -hmm. on and on. I want to run through uh, a few notable moments, some positive, some mm -hmm. negative, and uh, get you to recall the story. The first one being high school sophomore, your quarterback, mm -hmm. and on the one-yard line. Yeah, it was homecoming too. Um, yeah, I was playing quarterback for the homecoming game, one yard line. Uh, one of my best friends to this day was the fullback. We called a rollout pass to the fullback in the flat. I faked the handoff, rolled out, literally nobody within 10 yards of me, 10 yards of the fullback. He's standing in the end zone wide open. And I chucked it probably 10 yards over his head, like not even remotely <laughs> close. And the guy's like, I don't know, maybe like 5'8", so he wasn't going to jump and catch anything. <laughs> And I launched it as far as you could launch it over his head, um, which was always my problem as a quarterback. I could make the deep throw all day. I could throw the ball down the field all day, but I couldn't throw a bubble screen. I couldn't throw a short little pass. Um, so that was a terrible moment. Uh, and I think, you know, we all kind of said, okay, we should probably think about a new position here quickly. And I lost the quarterback battle the next year and ended up playing tight end defensive end. November 27th, 2010, mm -hmm. Wisconsin's final home game. Yeah. Uh, and the crowd yeah. starts chanting your name. That was one of the coolest experiences ever. You know, as a kid growing up in the state of Wisconsin, watching Badger games as a kid, you know, knowing how huge the Badgers are in Wisconsin. And then for my final game at Camp Randall Stadium, uh, my last play, they weren't going to let me go out there because we were already winning big. And I said, just give me one more play. It was a new series and they were going to put all the back. I said, I just want one more play. Just please give me one more play. Because in the back of my mind, I kind of knew that it could be my last game. And I went out there, I got a tackle for loss. I came off the field and the whole place just started chanting my name. And to hear 83,000 people in your home state, uh, in a stadium that you've been in to watch other people before you and you've idolized some of the players that have gone before you, to hear the entire stadium chanting your name and to just kind of look around and be like, this is the most absurd thing I've ever seen. And, you know, it brings you to tears. It's emotional. It was, it was one of the coolest moments of my life because it was, when you look back at the transfer process or high school or anything, you just, that was, it made everything worth it. It made my whole life, my whole work, every ounce of sweat, every single, you know, piece of adversity that you had to go through to get there. It made everything worth it. Have you had a more emotional moment on the football field than that? Um, there have been a few. You know, after that game, the crowd, uh, they rushed the field, so the whole field was covered in people, all 80,000 people out on the field, and still have no clue how it happened, but I found my mom in the middle of the whole crowd. And we hugged and just hugged for it felt like eternity and just emotions pouring out just it was the coolest feeling ever we won the Big Ten we were going to the Rose Bowl the whole crowd was chanting my name uh, it was just like we made it like thank you so much for believing in me when I left Central Michigan thank you so much for allowing me to chase my dreams thank you so much for making this possible uh, that moment was just like every thing we went through was worth it. So it's before the NFL draft, you're at an Indianapolis train station and mm -hmm. run into the then Texans yeah. D-line coach. <laughs> Bill Kolar. Uh, as soon as I left my meeting with Bill, I was like, well, I'm not going to get drafted by the Texans. 
Um, Bill is a guy who, he tells it like it is. He tries to get underneath your skin a little bit. Um, and he just wants to see how you react to things. So Bill came up to me in that train station at the combine. He was like, hey, you think you, you, think you play hard? And I was like, yeah, I play hard. And he was like, like, you think you really give it everything you have on the field? I was like, yeah, I give, I give everything I have on the field. He goes, you're a liar. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, I give everything I have on the field. He goes, bullshit. He goes, <laughs> I've watched your film. He goes, I guarantee you can play harder than that. You can try harder than that. And I was like, God, like, I'm, I give everything I have. I was like, that's kind of like my thing. Like, I give everything I have on the field. And he was like, if you come play for me, you're going to give every single thing that you have. And I was like, yeah, like, that's what I do. He's like, not that Wisconsin bullshit. He's like, you're going to give me everything you have. I was like, all right. And we went our separate ways. And I was like, well, probably check the Texans off because that guy doesn't seem to like me at all. Um, and then obviously ended up getting drafted, and I kind of find out that was his thing he did with everybody just to see how you handle it. Um, hated him for the first year I was ever with the Texans. Like we hated, I hated him because he's hard on rookies. That's just what he does. He's very hard on rookies. He wants to get the absolute most out of you that he can. Um, but now I love the guy. Uh, I mean, I, he's one of my closest friends. I love him to death because he pushes you beyond where you think you can go, and he does truly get the best out of you. So um, I do, I love him to this day. How true is it that you still keep a video file of the Texans fans booing the team yeah. after they draft you? Yeah, I have it on my uh, phone, I have it on my computer. Uh, I, have, I have that because- Why? Because I remember, you, you remember how quickly things can turn in this league. You remember uh, how fragile fame and success is. Um, when, they, when they drafted me, the whole place booed. The whole city kind of wondered who I was. They wanted somebody else, they booed. And I, got, I remember when I got to the airport in Houston, and the guy at the airport line when I was going through security saw I was wearing a Texans shirt, and he was like, he was like hey, you, you see, uh, you Texans fan? I said, yeah. He said, I hope that big white guy that they drafted is good. I kind of looked at him. I couldn't tell if he was serious or not. He literally had no clue who I was. And I was like, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> and we, it just went on my way. And so like, I'll always remember that. I'll always remember the fans booing me. I'll always remember people wondering if I'd be good. And my whole goal when I saw that for the first time was, I'm going to change this city's mind. I'm going to do everything I can to take this city from hating the draft pick to hopefully loving me. How, how much did it bother you at the time? It didn't really bother me because I understood where they were coming from. I mean, I was. I was a big white kid from Wisconsin that they didn't know a lot about that was considered a safe draft pick in a draft full of studs. I mean, there were a lot of big names in our draft, a lot of guys from big schools that had a lot of credentials. Um, there were a lot flashier names than I was, and so I, I understood. I, mean, I wasn't going to get mad at them for wanting somebody else. So prior to the start of the 2014 season, you signed a $100 million contract. Mm -hmm. Why did you take to Google? <laughs> to figure out what to do with that. Um, it was me and Taylor, uh, who you know. Uh, he was down here when I signed the contract. And I came home from work that day, and he was hanging out at my house. And I told him, I was like, we did it. Like, we got a deal done. And he was like, what'd you get? And I was like, $100 million. <laughs> and, <laughs> what did he say? And we both just looked at Like, he's from Pewaukee. I'm from Pewaukee. We're, we've been friends forever. And we both just kind of like looked at each other like, 
we got like I got a hundred million dollars. It was just the craziest, stupidest grin, like just like this is the most absurd thing ever. And we we were like, what do you do with that? And so we went online. We literally went to Google and we're like, what <laughs> what do rich people buy? Um, and you know, we came across yachts and jets and cars and. I was like, I gotta buy something. I was like, you almost have to buy something. And we, we literally went through lists and lists and we we're like, nah, there's nothing, nothing I need. Um, and now obviously I'm fortunate enough to, you know, have some cool things, but still I don't know if I've really done anything like terribly outlandish. I, I know your mom's very involved in your finances and right. uh, accounting. Why was that important to you? because she'll always keep me grounded. She'll always make sure I'm not doing anything stupid. Um, she is the, you know, she worked her way up from being a secretary at her company to being the vice president of her company. She is so organized, she's so smart, she's so well-versed in so many different aspects of life. Um, for her to be looking over me, nobody else has my best interests in mind the way that a mom does. So she is the number one person I always go to for anything because she, wants what's best for me first. And in a, in a world where everybody wants a PC, everybody wants your money, everybody wants your name, everybody wants to use you, there's really only two people that truly have the best interest for me at heart out there, and that's my mom and dad, so that's why I go to them for everything. What do you think they taught you about money growing up? <sighs> Be smart with it because it doesn't last forever. Um, you know, I think as we went along throughout this process and as we kind of started to realize that I may have a chance to make a lot of money. They kind of taught me what's important in life and what matters and what doesn't matter, you know. Uh, I think we all, we kind of realized, like, I want to make sure I took care of myself, my family, and then set myself up for success in the future because we know the stats. Like, we know that whatever it is, 87% of NFL players are divorced or broke within three years. Um, so I want to make sure I set myself up and my future kids up for success. Uh, and that's what we're doing now. Present day, um, how difficult is it to have privacy? Very difficult. Uh, it's extremely difficult. And I'm doing everything I can to try and, you know, keep that privacy. Well, like, um, what are some of the things you have to do now? I mean, it's a, you know, gate on the house to, uh, you know, having your address under a different name, to having to go in back doors of restaurants, to having to put your, you know, to fly privately, to have everything you do, you have to try and be conscious of it. Because you don't wanna, it's not that I don't wanna see fans, I love fans, like it's my favorite thing, but there's just things when you have to get something done, you don't have, you literally can't take the time because you have to get somewhere, you have to be somewhere, you have to do something, so. Um, there's nothing better to me than when I get to interact with fans, but there are a few times where I just need that time where I'm supposed to accomplish something, so you have to find ways to do it. The strangest fan interaction you've ever had would be what? It's pretty cool. So at the charity softball game, it was actually the charity softball game. One year, uh, this, this woman had me sign her pregnant belly. She was pregnant, and she was like, sign my belly. And I was like, well, that's probably one of the weirdest things I've ever signed. So I signed her belly, and then the next year at the charity softball game, I took a picture with the kid. <laughs> so that was cool. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. I liked that one. I thought that was really neat. But there's been, there has been a lot of weird stuff. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Did the, the post office once reached out to you out of concern for yeah. some package they delivered? Yeah, uh, the post office reached out, talked about um, basically making sure that it was safe and everything. Um, I mean, the fan mail 
between the stadium, my house, you know, the foundations, PO box, everything is, you literally try and keep up with it as best you can, but you, you can't. It'd be, you'd have to work 24 hours a day just to sign and send everything back. So, and then do, social media yeah, on top of it, right? I mean, all, everything. Right. And so I'm very fortunate to have a great team between, you know, my agent, my mom, um, the people in my life. They really helped me out so much in making sure that I let those fans know that I care and that I appreciate them and not like I'm abandoning them because uh, I try and do everything that I can. I try and accomplish everything that I can for the fans because I know that the reason I have a job is because of those fans. That's why I get a contract to play football. If there were no fans, I wouldn't have a job. So I'm very thankful for that. How often would fans show up at your old house? Oh, a couple of times a week. Um, they show up a couple times a week. Now people drive by my house a couple times a week and they take photos outside the gate and they stop and they look in. And so even when you're private, it's not private, right. but you know, you just do the best you can. Tell about the, what turned into an annual Halloween, uh, uh, you know, the thing that you had and then the last year when the neighbors had yeah. asked you to shut it down. Well, I love giving out candy. In my first year in the NFL, I was so excited because, you know, you have a contract and you're making a lot of money, so you can hand out, like, lots of candy to the kids. And, I, you know, and you, you always, wouldn't just give, like, little pieces no, of candy. You'd no, that, give, like... You always remember the house on the... Like, when I was a kid, you always remember which house gives out the best candy. Like, right. the biggest candy bar is the king size. So what I did, I went to the store, and I bought, you know, how they have, like, the sleeve of fun size, like right. eight in one pack. Right. So I bought the whole box of each type of candy. And I just gave out the whole sleeve. I was like, here, just take it all. <laughs> and uh, Maybe a bad move looking yeah, back. Uh, yeah, looking back, it was awful because <laughs> all of a sudden, like the second half of the night, I saw the same kids in different costumes. I saw people driving in from out. So my first year was the best because I could keep it, you know, kind of low key. And then the second year got crazy. And by the third year, uh, my neighbors came to me and they were like, hey, I think we should, you know, talk about Halloween. I was like, oh boy. Like, <laughs> and they didn't want me to do it. Um, so one, they, it's absurd. So I was like, I agreed. I was like, I won't, I won't hand out candy. And it sucked. I really wanted to, but you know, I had my entire neighborhood was like, hey man, like you probably shouldn't do it. I was like, all right. So they literally, my, my, my neighborhood has two entrance, one entrance, one exit. They set up cars to block the entrance to my neighborhood <laughs> and to block the exit. So nobody was allowed in, nobody was allowed out in my neighborhood. So I told them, all right, I'll leave from six o'clock till nine o'clock. So I left, whatever, it's fine. I come back at nine o'clock when I said I was gonna come back and I pull into my neighborhood. I'm probably a mile away from my house at least. And I see all these cars lined up on the side of the road. And I'm like, what, like, is somebody having a party or something? And they just keep going and they keep going for a whole mile, like all the way up to my, my neighborhood. And I'm like, what is happening? And I pull up and literally people parked their cars for over a mile outside of my neighborhood and walked in. And there was just loads of people outside my house taking pictures of my truck, taking pictures outside. Uh, I got to my front door and there was probably a four foot high stack of things that people left, whether it was books or notes. Uh, somebody left a note on the door and on the back of it was their MapQuest directions from five hours away from north of Dallas. They drove all the way down to get candy at my house. So it's pretty crazy. Um, but that's why, I, I mean, I have the best fans in the world. I'm very lucky. Uh, so you said not too long ago, um, you're, and this is a quote, um, you're, quote, actually focusing on working hard at having more fun. Yeah. Why? 
uh, I'm trying to enjoy everything that comes with being in the NFL and being who, who I am, you know. Um, like I talked about with Taylor, you know, there's no point in getting to the top if you don't enjoy the view. Uh, why put in all the work, why put in all the time if you're not going to actually enjoy and reap the benefits of it? So uh, I do I have to remind myself sometimes, like, let's, you know, let's have some fun, let's relax for a second, let's enjoy ourselves. So uh, I think I've gotten a whole lot better at balancing work and fun. And I think that's How? one thing. Just from having a, a better routine, um, you know, tweaking my routine to working out, uh, figuring out how to work out around an event as opposed to not doing an event, like, or something fun. Um, just so many different ways where I, I let myself have a little bit more fun. So before, if you needed to work out, you just wouldn't go yeah. to the fun event, whereas now you... Right, so like, uh, so my buddy just had a wedding in Philadelphia, and I was the best man at his wedding, and um, whether, you know, two days in a row you ran the Rocky Stairs, or you're doing a workout at a local high school, you're doing uh, something like that, whereas before it might have been just like, nah, I can't, I can't make it because I got this going on or that going on. Um, now I'm trying to like, okay, let's, let's do this, let's have some fun, but I'll still get my work in. What do you think you've had to sacrifice in your personal life for your career? Uh, In-depth relationships. I think that I, I wish I got more time to spend with my family and my friends. I wish I could, you know, make everybody's you know, birthday party and, you know, having a kid and um, everything, you know, graduations and uh, marriages and weddings. I wish I could do everything, but I can't. And I think that's probably the number one thing that I do miss out on is, is missing big moments in people's lives because of my life. And, but on the, I look at the flip side of that and all the cool things that we've gotten to do because of this life and all the trips, you know, to Ireland that I get to take with my buddies because of this life. So I mean, who, who, who else can right, exactly. take 10 of their high school buddies on a trip yeah. to Ireland. So everybody right. kind of understands. And I, one thing I'll always say is the pros will outweigh the cons 100 times out of the 100 in my life. To what extent, though, does it feel like to you you've missed out on some of that social stuff? You know, I, it doesn't feel, this has always been my goal. Everybody who's known me since high school has known this has been my goal. So I don't feel like I've missed out on that much because I've done everything to accomplish my goals. And yes, I've missed some very cool events and stuff um, that a lot of people go to for their friends or for their family. But this was my goal. This is what I committed to doing. This is the life that I chose. So I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, if I could do it all over again, I would do it differently because I wouldn't. Right. I, I want to be here. I want to be in the position I'm in, and, and it's worked. The best female celebrity that because of your success you've gotten to meet would be who? Jennifer Aniston, yeah, hands down. Um, she's been my only, she was always my only celebrity crush. She was my, uh, you know, I don't get starstruck, I don't get, I'm just not that guy. Like, I don't get uh, that excited about celebrities because I realize the regular people, but she was always the one that I was like, she'd be cool to meet. So take me through it from when you first run into her. Um, we were at CAA at the offices and they said she was in of the your building. agency? Yeah, my agency, and they said she was in the building, so I immediately started sweating. And, uh... Like, legitimately sweating? I mean, it was one of those moments where, like, 
it's, it's basically be like in high school when like they say your crush is in your class and you're like, oh, I better look good. Like, and so you immediately like, how do I look? Like, did I wear right? You didn't get to pick an outfit or anything. You're like, this is, do I look good? Do I not look good? Do I need to do my hair? Like, what do I need to do? Um, and they were like, yeah, we're gonna, you're gonna go meet her in a little bit. And I was like, so then you start freaking out. Like, what do I say? Like, do I, do I hug her? Do I shake her hand? What? Like, how does this go? What? What happens here? Um, and. We went in and met. She was so incredibly nice. She was sweet. We took a photo together. We talked a little bit, chatted, um, and it was awesome. How did you do? I did okay. I didn't do great. Uh, did you feel like your nerves I felt like were a showing? Fan. I felt like a fan. Okay. Yeah. Um, which I've always like. I've never. I've never really felt like that before. But I felt like a fan, and uh, I kept it together. I didn't. I don't think I was shaking or anything. So I. I think it was okay. Speaking of uh, celebrities, dinner with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Tell about that. No, he's uh, he's become a good friend. It's kind of crazy how it all happened. You know, he. Uh, how did it come about? We met at the CMT Awards, just kind of on a whim. We were we happened to be in the same vicinity at the awards. We met, uh, and now we've hung out you know, probably four or five times over the last year. And he's he's become a good friend, and it's. Uh, it's just a fun, for me, I bounce all different things off of him, whether it's weightlifting tips or business. Um, and we just shoot the breeze, and it's kind of cool. As a kid growing up, you know, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know. Um, so it's kind of neat. What was the first dinner like with him? Uh, the first dinner, when we actually had dinner, it was at his house. Um, it was cool. We talked about just everything, just random stuff. We talked about, uh, you know, his, he has a lot of pets, like animals. We talked about everything from his time in office as governor to his weightlifting career to football to all different things so it was really cool what's the best advice he's given you um we just talk about like uh, just silly stuff like as far as advice goes we talk or about the most interesting conversation the most interesting conversation was definitely when we were talking about his he has a pet pig a pot belly pig and a pet donkey and they teamed up together to figure out how to open up their five gallon bucket of food so like the donkey knocked it off the shelf, and then the pig, or the donkey, and then the donkey backed it up into a corner, and then the pig used his snout to, to twist off the top, and then all the food came out, and they would eat the food together. So I, that was mind blowing to me. It was pretty funny. So speaking of food, your workouts and diet, um, how's your diet evolved over the years? It's gotten a lot better. Uh, I think that's the best part about going from college in the NFL. In college, you're on a scholarship check. You're on that kind of that limited amount of money to spend so you have to make sure you get your rent paid you have to make sure you have you know all your utilities and everything and then you have whatever's left is for food uh, so you just eat whatever you can afford in college and then once you get to the nfl your finances obviously change and you're able to afford to eat properly to eat the nutrition that you need as an athlete so over the course of my nfl career i've learned a lot i've changed my diet a lot and I think that's why I've leaned out so much. Um, I'm the same weight as I was when I came into the league, but I'm a lot leaner now because I can eat properly. Your buddy was telling me that when you lived with him for a while, not too long ago, the grocery bills would be three, $400 a yeah. week. He's like, this is absurd. How often do you eat? I eat probably, I mean, honestly, I eat probably seven to eight times a day. Um, it's about every, I don't know, maybe hour and a half, two hours, depending on the schedule. but. I'm always eating, like whether it's in between a meeting, in a meeting, uh, immediately before practice, after practice, I'm always eating. He, he was telling me for breakfast, you would have every morning half a dozen over easy eggs, mm -hmm. oatmeal, and yogurt? Yeah, my breakfast, uh, I eat two breakfasts every morning. Uh, I, 
I eat probably, on average, about 10, 12 eggs a day. Um, but yeah, breakfast. Whole uh, eggs, not egg whites. No, whole yeah, egg. whole eggs. Okay. Um, but yeah, for my normal first breakfast in the morning, it's uh, five eggs over medium, not over easy. So he, oh, he got that wrong. Um, two pieces of to wheat toast, whole wheat toast, uh, uh, oatmeal. Uh, I just found this new oatmeal that I really like that's a lot healthier than some of the other oatmeals. Um, yogurt, and then uh, milk, water, and orange juice, and then apple, banana. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, the first, you got to fuel the, the machine. Breakfast. Yeah, you got to fuel the machine. You know, I think that's a big mis misconception. Is you know, uh, you can't you can't go on and do a full day of activities without with an empty stomach. You have to have you have to be able to fuel what you're trying to do. What's the off season workout schedule entail? Well, this season's been a, di a bit different because I had surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so normally in an off season workout schedule, I work out six days a week, with four of them being two a days. Um, so this year I've transitioned it a little bit. I work out six days a week with three of them being two days because my trainers and everybody told me I need to back it off. Mm -hmm. So I took one one second workout off. Okay. Um, just so I could tell them I was backing it off. But that's like their big thing right now is everybody's trying to tell me to take it a little bit easier on the workouts, slow down a little bit, and your body's trying to tell you you need a little bit more rest. But I only know one way. I got, I got here by working hard. And I'm going to ask you about the injury in the remaining moments we have, but just to uh, close the loop on the workouts, uh, the, t tell a little bit about this, what's since become famous box jump mm -hmm. and how high you've gotten. Yeah, you know, the first time we ever did the box jump was my rookie, before my rookie year in the league. I think it was, I was going into the draft and we were training and doing box jumps and I did 55 and a half inches my first time and that was crazy. Like the whole gym, we all went nuts because that was wild. Um, and then every year that kind of just became the phenomenon. I was like, let's see how high we can get. And then I went to 57 and 59 and then finally I hit 61 inches, which is five feet one inches. And, um, I mean, it's crazy. His, 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 the box jump as an actual workout, uh, you really don't need to go any higher than, you know, maybe 42 inches just to get the explosive aspect of it. You mm -hmm. don't need the extra height because you're just, it's the explosion off the ground. Um, but it became something that I could, you know, physically see how high I could get and you had a quantifiable number to attain. Right. And this isn't like a running jump. No, this no, is you're right in front of the still, box. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, you get a lot of people now that try and send me videos like, look, I beat your, I'm like, no, you didn't. You ran or you took a step. Like, you have to literally be standing completely still and just jump straight up. Do you think you can get any higher? The surgery's kind of set me back okay. and that's kind of been a very, uh, like a, a barometer for me to see where I am. So I've okay. already done 57. Uh, I did 57 four times one day, so I know I'm getting close. Uh, I think right now, if I had to today, I'd probably hit you know 58, maybe 59. What do you remember from when some other random trainer was bragging to you about how he flipped the 1,100 pounds yeah. higher more times than you did? Uh, I remember I've known the trainer for a long time, so we we were you know we always bust each other a little bit. Okay. And he was telling me, I think he said he did it nine times. I want to say. Um, and I was like, oh, nine times. Like that's impressive. That's a big tire. Congratulations. And but you aren't really thinking that no. at the time. And then I'm thinking like, okay, I can maybe more than nine times. Um, and I wanted to outdo him, so I outdid him. And then it became a thing like, okay, let's see how many I can get. And 65 ended up being the number and that was because <laughs> Brad wouldn't let me go anymore so Brad being your longtime yeah trainer my trainer yeah based in Wisconsin but I firmly believe I could have done 100 that day 
What role has Brad Arnett played in your life? He's, besides my parents, I think that Brad has played probably the biggest role. Um, he took a skinny 15-year-old high school sophomore who was a quarterback, and he taught me mentally, he taught me physically, he mentored me, he was, he was, like, a, he was like a brother, a friend, a trainer, like a father, all wrapped into one. Um, and he, he helped transform me into what I am today. And that's why I still work with him today after you know 10 years. Um, and that's why I'll always work with him because he knows me better than I know myself sometimes. And I can go to him with anything and he is just an absolute master at what he does. It took a long time for him to attend one of your NFL games yeah. and I think he was telling me the reasoning was because he just didn't want to get in the way. Um, I'm unsure if you're uh, aware of this but you know I was talking to him yesterday and he got really choked up when telling about how special that moment was for him the first game mm -hmm. attending and how you know you went out of your way yeah. uh, to, to be great to him. Um, how much of it all does that surprise you? Well, he's always, he's always been like a closet emotional guy. Like he, he's very, uh, he's so passionate and he's so committed to what he does. So that's why the emotions run so deep. He, and that's why people love him. That's why everybody who trains there loves him because he cares so much. And he doesn't care about any fame. He doesn't care about marketing his, his business. He doesn't care about any of that. He just cares about the people that are there and making them the best they can possibly be. And that's why our relationship runs so deep. And I think that's why that moment was so special because that was, I mean, he sees me in the gym every day and we, we joke around, we mess around with each other. Um, but when you actually go to a stadium and you see it, what your work did, I think it was pretty special. The injury. Um, I understand, I mean, you went through some pretty dark times in the off season and even questioned if you were done. Mm -hmm. Why? I think when, when you're an athlete and you're an elite athlete and you have been able to do whatever you want with your body throughout your whole career, you know, uh, you, you, if you want to make a cut, you make a cut. If you want to jump, you jump. If you want to run fast, you run fast. When you've been able to do anything you want and then that's taken away from you, it makes you question everything. You know, when you have to learn how to walk, like walk properly again, when you have to learn how to run again, when you have to learn how to cut again, that makes you question everything about you as a person, everything about you as an athlete. And there were moments where I legitimately did not know if I would physically be able to play football again. And then there were moments where I didn't know if I wanted to play again because of everything that came along with it. Um, but what it gave me was a fresh mindset and a fresh perspective because every year, I, you know, it's climbing a mountain and, you know, whether it's winning defensive player of the year, whatever it is, you're at the top of that mountain. So the off season, you, you go back down the mountain a little bit, but I never let myself go too far down the mountain. So then it was just reclimbing back to the top and maybe a little higher. This time with the surgery, I'm all the way back at the base of the mountain. And I've never had to climb the full mountain really since the beginning of everything. So for me, it's a chance for me to climb the whole mountain again. It's a chance for me to have new challenges for new, uh, almost like I'm a rookie again and I get to redo everything that I've ever done and refight every battle I've ever had to fight. And for me, that's exciting. 
not that not that being successful and, and not that it got easy, but I love a challenge and my back's against the wall again. When you're questioning if you'll be able to play again or even if you mm -hmm. wanted to play again, take me to that mental space and what you were thinking about at that time. Well, it was awful, you know, there were complications. So I was only supposed to be in the surgery room for 45 minutes and I was in there for two and a half hours because we, they found more wrong than we thought. Um, I was supposed to be able to walk normally within a couple of days and I couldn't walk normally for weeks. I was supposed to be able to start training again in you know, a month and I couldn't train again for longer than that. So it, it was just a scary time because nothing has ever really gone that wrong for me. Even when I dislocated my elbow and tore all the ligaments in my elbow, I played a game four weeks later. With this, I had no control. I couldn't control how fast the surgery took. I couldn't control how fast I healed. Um, so it really messed with my mind. It was the first time that I felt like I couldn't control how I was going to be as an athlete. Um, so it really messed with my head. And I was sitting in a hotel room in Philadelphia for like 10 or 12 days. All you do is sit, lay in that hotel room in pain and your only job is to try and walk because you're supposed to be able to walk for your rehab. And I couldn't even do that. And so then you start to question everything. Tell me about one of the calls you made to your trainer, Brad, from that Philadelphia hotel room. I talked to Brad a few times. Which one are you talking about? Um, he said you were sounding pretty beat up. I was bad. I mean, I was in a bad place mentally, physically. I, uh, I just honestly didn't know if, it would, if I would be able to come back because your core is everything in football. I mean, you have to use your core for literally every movement on the field. And I literally couldn't get out of bed by myself. I couldn't walk by myself. Um, so, and they, the, I, I don't think it was necessarily not being able to. I think it was them telling me that I would be okay to walk in a couple of days. And then like a week goes by and I'm still not walking right. And, yeah, and why was it? It was just, it was a more invasive surgery than expected. It took, there were a lot more things wrong and a lot more things that need to be reconnected than we thought. And so it just took a while. And, and, you know, whether it was a nerve getting messed up or whatever, it just, it took a long time. How difficult was it to surrender to the fact that once you started working out again, you weren't going to immediately be able to do yeah. what you were used to? It was the worst um, because I, I mean, I'm a stubborn guy, so I hate admitting things. And so when my workouts started again and I had to do lesser workouts than I normally did to get back to where I was, I hated it. I mean, I wanted to go and, and do the heavy weights and run the, run the fast sprints and do everything. And they all just, everybody from Brad to the Texans trainers, you know, said, just slow down, like we got time. And now I'm back to doing everything I've done before. So it's, I'm glad that we did it that way. I'm glad that they forced me to relax. Um, and I think in the end, this will all be beneficial for me because it's gonna give my body, it gave my body a chance to rest. And it said, hey, you need to take some time, just relax, let your body recover. So I think in the end, it's gonna be a really good thing. I want to end on this because you are, I mean, despite being at the top of the NFL, kind of a big kid. Yeah. And we've, uh, over the past hour and a half or so, you know, heard the, about the various points of your life and your story to success. Um, if, you know, some kids watching this and, you know, sees, you know, mm -hmm. you and are kind of doubting themselves and their ability but would like to someday get here too. What advice would you give? 
I think the first piece of advice that I would give would be to enjoy where you are now. I think as even here in the NFL today, if I could go back to high school and, and relive my high school days, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Uh, because it was one of the most fun times of my life and the relationships that you build and the people that you're around every single day, that's the most important thing ever. So I think it's learn to enjoy and embrace where you are in life right now. And then the other thing I would say is to make the most out of every single moment of every day. One of the best things somebody told me once was, look at your day in 10 minute increments. Write down on a piece of paper your day and every 10 minutes what you did for that 10 minutes. And then look at how many of those 10 minute increments you wasted. And then sit down for the next day and figure out how you're going to waste less 10 minute increments. So the more productive you can make your day, the more effective you can make your day, the better you're going to be in the end. And if you're looking to have, you're looking to make a big dream come true, start with the big dream. What's your biggest dream? I mean, if it's playing in the NFL, it's playing in the NFL. Okay, how do I get there? Well, I'd probably get drafted. That'd be better than not drafted. How do you get drafted? I want to get drafted in the first round is my best option. So what did the top defensive end in the first round get? Um, what was his 40 time? How big was he? How fast was he? How strong was he? Okay, how do I accomplish those numbers? Well, I need to get in the weight room. Okay, so how can I get in the weight room and improve my speed, my agility, my strength today? What can I do today to improve that? Well, it's going to also involve nutrition, so how can I eat properly? So it's a process. You take the big dream and you break it down to its simplest form. What can I do today to make myself better? And once you break everything down into that and you do those things, that's when you have big time success. It's not about just chasing a massive dream. It's about what are you going to do today to make your dream come true. Really a pleasure. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my chat with J.J. Watt. For more of my interview with Watt, plus to check out his softball skills, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.